Dear Lord, we thank You for this time, and we thank You, God, for the blessings that we have received, and everything that we have has come from Your hand. Lord, I pray, particularly during these days, that You'd help us to determine from want and need. Lord, that You would redefine for us what it means to follow You and know You, and Lord, to reach out to those in need. Lord, we thank You for all the provisions that You have given. And Lord, as we move forward, we pray that we would honor and glorify You with all that we have. Speak to us this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You have your Bibles. We're in Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. And as we continue with the story of Joseph, that's a great question. Why should we forgive? Why should we have to forgive others who have wronged us? And Joseph certainly probably asked that question in regards to his brothers who 20 to 25 years earlier had taken him because of their jealousy, because of their envy, because of their sin, and decided that they would get rid of him. And in the last moment, they saw a caravan of slave traders coming who were headed to Egypt and they determined that they would sell him and make a profit off of his life. And so they had sold him, and he found himself as a slave in a foreign land to a foreign man. And he was faithful as a slave, but yet, though he would not sleep with his master's wife, found himself in prison through false accusations. You think he was a man who wondered, why should I forgive? Why should I release? And yet, he found the freedom to forgive. Then he interprets a dream of a butler or a wine taster in Pharaoh's court and asks him to remember him when he goes before the Pharaoh. But yet again, he was forgotten. And yet again, we see... Now, in this chapter, as Pharaoh has come and appointed Joseph as second in command in all of Egypt, we see no instance or no evidence whatsoever that Joseph sought to even the score with Potiphar or Potiphar's wife who had wrongly and purposefully lied about him and had him placed in prison. We don't see him trying to get even or bring up the fact with the wine taster. We simply see a man who has withered these difficult times or weathered these difficult times and we find him in a situation where he is able to impact the world in a positive manner because of his God, because of God Almighty who has enabled him to interpret dreams and and interpret them correctly. So that's where we find Joseph. We find in this particular chapter Joseph's brothers who have not only not been able to let go, but we find them in a famine. We find that the cost of their sin is great. Not just because they're physically enduring the pains of the land, but we have good reason to believe that they're enduring the pain of their sin. 
They've never been open or honest about what had occurred. They've never released their father from his tremendous amount of grief that he suffered over these 20 years or 25 years. Every day his father thinks that he's lost his son, that he's died, not knowing that his son was sold into slavery. And his brothers live with this. But I'm not sure that they live very well. Let's pick up chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Now go there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. You know, as I see that passage right there, I, I, I wonder if Egypt was not just a place that was a foreign country for the brothers, but was a place in which they equated their sin. Probably when they heard that word Egypt, they had heard the same message. They had seen the same people coming from Egypt with the grain and with the food. They knew, but yet their father is puzzled. He says, you're staring at one another. What are you doing here? Why are you basically not moving ahead? Why aren't you doing something about our faith? Why have you not gone to Egypt to to buy food for us, probably because of their shame. Because they probably knew that their brother either had died in Egypt or was living as a slave in Egypt. And the thought of going back there, the thought of heading to that place was probably very hard for them to swallow. You know, in a very minor way, I think about when I was in fourth grade and we moved to a new school. And my first day at that school, I'm in the boys' bathroom, and this guy named Levi beats me up just because I'm new and I don't know why. Don't know to this day. I know that I didn't like Levi from then on. And every time I'd see him, I'd just, you know, until I was in 11th grade and moved away, I was just, I didn't like Levi because he beat me up on the first day of school. And I didn't want to go in that men's restroom. That boys' restroom, I'd go to the other one. I'd go down to the fifth graders because I didn't want to go in there because it was a painful memory. I remember one time as a college student going back there and looking at and just thinking of those painful memories in that men's restroom right there. Now, that's nothing. I'm over it, by the way. I'm, I'm better now. Um, but I wonder if magnified about a hundred times if that's not how the brothers felt when they heard about Egypt. The possibilities of having to go into Egypt. And what if we get there and we see our brother and he's a slave? I don't know that I want to go there. And then the ten brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for the famine in the land was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold the grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him and their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. And he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied to buy food. Now, Joseph has probably dreamed and thought about the day that one day he might see his family. One day that he might see his brothers possibly. 
But they certainly are not expecting to see Joseph, at least not in this position. Joseph is now clean-shaven. As a Semitic, he would have had uh, he would have had a beard and would have had facial hair. But as an Egyptian, his face would have been cleanly shaven. He had on the Egyptian garb, and he had a new name. No way they would be expecting him. And not only that, we know from later in the chapter that he speaks through an interpreter. So they have no idea that this might be Joseph, but he recognizes them immediately. And in verse 8, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And then in verse 9, then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies, you've come to see our land is unprotected. He remembered his dreams. Now that word remember, we've talked about this before, um, Probably one of the greatest Hebrew scholars of our day is Abraham Heschel. And when he looks at that word in that particular instance and remembered it, it always has a, a, a huge meaning for uh, in the Hebrew language. But in this particular instance, it gives us the picture and the etymology that he recognized his dream. He recognized that this is the moment of my dreams, that... As my brothers bowed before me in my dreams, so are they bowing before me now. He understands the full purpose and the full weight of those dreams for the first time. He's had this vision in his mind, but now God recalls in his mind and he sees this is the time of which was foretold when I was 17 years old, when I had the dream about how my brothers would come before me. And he remembers this. And he says, you're spies. Now, we don't know why he does that. We don't know if it's a gut reaction. We don't know if he's testing them. But probably it's the latter. He's probably testing, has there been any change in your hearts? Maybe there's some emotion there that he doesn't quite know how to express. But for whatever the reasons, they say, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. But in fact, are they honest men? They haven't been honest with their father. Matter of fact, he may be employing a skill that he's learned as an Egyptian here to get them to disclose the information of his father and his family. He continues on. He says, no, but you have come here to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan, and the youngest is with our father, and one is no more. What's interesting about that, first of all, uh, one is no more. It doesn't actually mean that he's dead. It, it means that they don't know what has become of him. So we, we don't know what has become of one of our brothers and you can hear almost a sense of regret in their voices as they say this. But even bigger, I used to wonder this as a kid. Now, what would it prove for them to go back and get Benjamin? I mean, how does that help anything? Well, they know that they're from Canaan. And they know by their, their uh, semantics, by their linguistics, that they are what we would call today, not what they would call back then, but they would be called Jewish, what we would call today. And so they have this different dialect. And in that culture, the last thing that you would ever do would be send all your boys into a hostile ter territory or give all every male in your family 
a, a chance to be imprisoned or killed because your name would not move on from that point. So the, as they confess that there's one more brother, then, then bring him here. That will prove you're not spies because I know you would never do that. I know your father would never allow that to happen. And so in a sense, they are creating a case that they are not spies and one that would even be believable. And Joseph said to them, It is as I told you in verse 14, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother and the rest of you are to be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you are not, and remember they're saying that they're honest men, if you are not, then surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he puts them all into custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. Now that, is a, that right there is a mammoth phrase, I fear God, because he uses the word Elohim here. And, he's, and basically, if you would have been an Egyptian, particularly an Egyptian ruler, you would have been a polytheist. You would not have reflected or responded about one God, but they're, he's doing that. And there must have been something go through their mind, even though they were in fear. Why, why would he say that? Why does he fear God? And the revelation is coming. So he continues here. He goes on and he says, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. You see the spirit of remorse. When we have unconfessed sin in our lives, when we are in bondage to our past, usually it starts with that shame to begin with. We are ashamed. And... You know, the, the real truth of it is that sometimes we as evangelicals have not properly communicated what pride is. Now, there's, there are two types of pride. One type of pride is this. It's when I am egotistical or I think I am better than you are, when I think I deserve things, when I think that I am superior. That is a sense of pride in which God disdains. But there's another type of pride. It's this type of pride. It's the opposite of shame. Pride, which is the opposite of shame, and probably the best way to communicate in our our vernacular is one of confidence. Let me give you an illustration here. If we were outside and we were talking and we went over to the coffee and I accidentally spilled coffee all over your shirt, I could handle it one of two ways. I could go, golly, I'm so stupid. What is wrong with me? I always do things like this. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did this. And I just beat myself up and I make it all about me. And I shame myself to the point that hopefully you won't shame me. Now, that's one way to handle it. Now, if I have a healthy sense of self-worth and pride in the positive sense, I would go, I am so sorry. I, I don't know what happened. I apologize I did that. Let me help you clean that up. And i tell you what, I'm going to... I'll pay for whatever it costs to get that claim. So there's two different ways to handle it. So many times we think that we're being godly by being shame-based, and that's really not the case. Okay? 
God wants us to be repentant and humble, but don't refuse humility with shame. I believe the brothers are in a spirit of shame right now, and now they've moved to a spirit of remorse. And that word remorse, the etymology, even the English means this. It means to bite again. That's literally what it means. It's the picture of something has hurt you or harmed you, and now it's come back to hurt you again. Now it's come back to hit you again. It's kind of like a bad dog that bit you one time, and you think he doesn't bite anymore, and then he bites you again. All right? So that's what's, that's the picture that we're seeing, and that's the picture of what we're hearing as we read this passage right here in 21. As it says, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We've been shamed about this. We haven't been able to tell our father. We've been living with this. And now it's coming back to bite us again. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded for his life. We see this right here. We, we don't see it in the earlier chapters. But Joseph, according to this passage, he begged his brothers. He pleaded with them, please do not do me this way. Do not throw me in this pit. Do not sell me. He probably cried out their names as he was taken away. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And then Reuben, you think there's some bitterness here? I mean, this has happened probably 25 years before. And here's Reuben. And let's hear, hear what he has to say. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? I've told you this before. Didn't I tell you? What were you thinking? Look what you've done to us. But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. See, that spirit of bitterness is set in with probably with Reuben at this point. And they did not realize that Joseph could understand them because he was using an interpreter. This is going all on right before Joseph, and they don't think he understands a word because he's Egyptian. When we continue, he says, He turned away from them and began to weep, but then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Just as he had been bound before the brother's eyes and marched away as a slave, now Simeon, interestingly, uh, who was the oldest brother? Reuben. He's just heard Reuben say, I didn't want to do this. While I was away, you did this. So the next, probably in authority, would have been Simeon. So now as Joseph had been put in bondage, now they get the visual of seeing Simeon put in bondage. And they're going to be tested just as they left their brother and to never return, what will happen this time with Simeon left? Let's see if there's been any transformation in their lives. And when we see Joseph gave orders to fill the bags with grain and to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, after this was done for them, they loaded the grain on their donkeys and left. Now, we don't know why Joseph did this. We don't know if this was an act of grace. Joseph uh, is giving them money in a time where it's very difficult, where he knows that they are suffering and struggling. Uh, we don't know if he's trying to be a, a good Jew at this point. We don't, we don't really know. Or could be that, again, that this is all part of a test. He's finding out, has there been any change? How will they handle this same adversity this time? 
And at the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened its sack to feed for the to get feed for the donkey, and he saw the silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. And listen how they handle it this time. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other with trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? That admission of guilt. Are we having to pay for our sins now? For we have lost our brother, we sold our brother away, and, and now we were, we were placed in prison. As Reuben has said, we're going to have to give account for his blood. And we think, okay, we've been released. All we have to do is come back with our brother Benjamin and we can receive more food and we'll be able to get our brother back. But now they find the silver in the sack. And they think, they didn't think, oh, good luck! This is great! We got money for this! That's what they did with Joseph. Hey, we were just going to kill him off, but instead we got a chance to get a little money in our pocket instead. Now they have that same opportunity. We can abandon Simeon. We could probably tell our father he's gone and simply profit from it. But no, they recognize this time. They say, what is it that God is doing to us? That spirit of guilt has come full circle at this time. So we see the shame we see the bondage that they've been in because of their shame, because of their regret, because of their remorse, because of the bitterness, and because of their guilt. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. Maybe not exactly like that. But maybe you've been in situations before where you feel a guilt over something you've done and you thought, I'm just going to hang on to it. I think I'll just cover it. For a while, I'll just let it go. I, I, I'm sure everybody will forget. And then there are instances that come up in life to where it starts to come back and, and bite you. And you feel extremely guilty, but you're still unwilling to confess. Maybe you've been in that situation through no fault of your own. I mean, look at the life of Joseph. Joseph really didn't do anything to merit any of the harm that has come about him. Any of the affliction that he has endured, nothing has he done. He simply interpreted some dreams. Maybe he did it as a 17-year-old boy without a lot of social skills. But outside of that, we don't really see that Joseph did anything wrong. And yet he has released the pain. We don't see that he is, even though he has the power and the position and the authority, that he goes to get back with Potiphar. What about Potiphar's wife who placed him in prison? We see no evidence that he seeks to get even with her. He has released it. The cupbearer, we see that he says nothing to the Pharaoh or to the cupbearer. He's a man who's learned to let go and to release. Interesting. I think there's some principles that we can learn from him. Learning to do right even when we've been wronged. That... We also recognize that you don't have to have done anything wrong to have been wronged. Sometimes, and it has nothing to do, it's not God's punishment, sometimes we are wronged, we are hurt, even though we've done nothing wrong. But God still wants to use that time in our lives. 
even though he might not have perpetuated it, forced it to happen. But through the sin of those around us, we endure pain. But still the question will come, how will we handle it? Well, a couple of things we can do. Number one, we consider the source. I think Joseph was probably able to do that. He was able to consider the source. You know what? What will it merit me? How will it help me? How will it better me to try to get back at Potiphar's wife? How will it help me to have my brothers killed or permanently imprisoned? No, what I'm looking for is change. What I'm looking for is not revenge, but I'm looking for release. I'm looking for change. Watch what you say. It's interesting that Joseph knew what to say. He, he, we didn't see a lot of bitterness spewed when he was in prison. We didn't see it come out of his mouth, even though he was late and being delivered after the butler had finally let the Pharaoh know. And we see now that though he speaks in a harsh tone, he could, he could have done a lot more than this. He could have said, do you know who I am? Do you know what I can do? He doesn't even give himself away. He watches what he says. And he, I believe he uses these words in order to find out who they really were and what they really were. Joseph is the classic for letting God fight his battles. Now, when I say that, Joseph didn't just sit around. We saw that with the, with the cupbearer, that he did everything he honestly and ethically could, but yet he trusted God with what he couldn't do just as we are. He didn't have to get into the manipulation or the revenge game. Be sure your sins will find you out, the Scripture tells us. And that's exactly what happened with his brothers. They lived in bondage all this time. But the providence of God is stronger than the bondage of man. We see Joseph has been through a process. And we see his brothers are now having to go through a process so interesting, we live in a society today where, particularly as evangelicals, we think, hey, I just want to get it. I want to name it, claim it, and give it to me right now. But you know what's interesting? You look at the life of Joseph, you look at the life of Jesus, you look at the life of Paul. All these men went through a process. Every great man in Scripture goes through a process. When we pray prayers like this, God, give me wisdom. God, give me humility. God, give me favor. Make me like you. I think we live in a society that we think God's going to go, Bing. all right, you're a wise man now. You're mature. Do we really think it works that way? I mean, are we really thinking that that's the way God grows us, is that He zaps us with maturity? That He zaps us with patience? Does anything else work like that in life? No, I tell you what God does. He provides the opportunities for you to become patient, for you to become wise, for you to become humble, for you to become like Jesus. And Joseph took advantage of each one of those opportunities. His brothers simply were living in that shame and in that bondage. You see, we can choose to look at life and, why is God doing this to me? I want you to stop. Or God, what do you want me to, how do you want me to grow from this? God, what is it that you want me to change my life? How do you want to transform me? We can say, oh me, 
or O God? The question is not what of these events will occur in our life. The question is how will we respond? We talked about this before. The etymology in the Hebrew of Joseph's two children. One was that of Ephraim, which meant double blessing. And Joseph every day got to see the double blessing in his life. He had been a man who had lost his family, who had been in prison and had served as a slave. But now he was second in command of all of Egypt. Probably the most powerful culture of this world. Certainly now with a famine with no question. And here he is in this instance. And he has all that anyone would desire. He has a double blessing And he has a child named Ephraim that he each time he calls their name, he knows that. And and then a second son named Manasseh. Remember the etymology of that word? It's, It's difficult for us to translate, but it's something of this. God has helped me to forget the sting or forget the pain. Not God has made me forget everything that happened to me, but He has removed the sting, the fire from my mind. So that when I think of them, I don't live in that revenge. I don't live in that spirit of shame. I don't live in that spirit of avenging myself. I'm able to release that. Boy, I I know that that must have been such a, a word, such a ministry, such a power within him to have that type of spirit. You know, I, I think back when we were starting the church and, you know, it was really a sweet time. And you know how you look back at a lot of times and they're all good. But I got to reflecting back about some of the difficult times at first. And certainly there were financial difficulties and, you know, the whole deal where you have this image and these plans. I'd written them all out. And this is the way things are going to go. And like none of those happen. You know, we're going to go to this school. But then they say, no, you can't get in this school. And then the principal doesn't really want us there. And then, OK, where do we where do we meet now? And these families are going to help. But then they don't help. And these people are going to help financially. And then they don't help. And then I've got some people that are close to me and other family members are thinking, you've made a bad mistake. Let's get you out of this. And you're hearing those messages and, you know, and, and, and even though I'm not sharing them, I'm, I'm thinking them in my head. And I'm thinking, what, what's going on? God, have I, I made a mistake? Is something wrong here? And I'll never forget, it was during that time in the very early days, um, we, uh, I got, I'm talking to the missions director in Denton County, and he said, you know, there was a family that a couple of years ago when Lantana started, they prayed and they, they, they thought that a church ought to be started out there. And they called and asked, are you all thinking about starting a church in this area, and they, they didn't give any indication at that point. Well, not right now. And they said, why don't you call them? It's been a couple of years ago, but they, they prayed that a church would be started out there. So I, I called them up and, and talked to them. They said, well, you know, we did a couple of years ago pray about that, but really there's not a, I don't know that we necessarily want to do that now. We hadn't thought about it or prayed about it in a long time. We do ride our bikes out there, and we think that'd be a good idea. But at this point, I, I, I don't know. And they said, well, Come, come over and visit with us, and we'll talk about it, and we'll pray about it. So I'll never forget going to their house. And at this point, I'm like the oldest person in our church. And um, I remember getting over there, and uh, we go to this, pull up to this house, and the guy is blind. He's legally blind. And then the lady's there, and we, we tell them what we're doing. They said, well, you know, we did pray a few years ago that God would bring a church out. But, you know, things are kind of different right now, and we, we don't know. We'll, we'll pray about it. 
we commit to pray about it. And, and as I've told you before, for a lot of people, that's Christianese for no, uh, when they tell you they're going to pray about it. And so um, my wife, uh, being the spiritual godly man and the understanding and being the guy who can just really read people really well and know what they're talking about, when we left there, my wife said, what do you think? I go, they're not coming. And uh, so we, uh, we drive away, and, and we had our uh, first little home service. I guess it was the second home service we had uh, a couple of days later, and they showed up. And I'll never forget, the guy came up with his dog, and he said, um, you know what? We prayed about it, and we think God wants us here. So however you want to use us, we're available. We're here. God wants us here. And so as you, many of you know, that was Ruth and Ed Brock. Ruth did all the legal work to get our church up and going pro bono. Uh, Ed uh, had gone blind. He had a shop that we now use for our offices. It's where our staff meets. We did all our staff meetings there for five years. And you know what we named our first son? When I was 40 years old, by the way. I know you all think I'm in my 20s, but I'm a little older. And I, I named him. It's not that funny. I, I named him Brock. And when I call his name, it is a constant reminder of the blessing, of how God spoke to me in a moment, how God ensured hope. I remember when they said, we're here. I remember just thinking, God just giving me an affirmation. It doesn't matter who else doesn't commit. It doesn't matter who else leaves. I want you to know that this is where I want you. And this is your little glimpse for today. Of course, Ed went on to become our first elder, first elder of our church till he rotated off here this year. I tell you that to tell you this, that God is moving and speaking, but He's doing it primarily and usually through a process. I'm not saying that people don't come to Christ sometimes all at once. Sometimes they do. But I can tell you this, we don't grow all at once. We grow through the process. Joseph has been through the process of nearly 25 years of difficulties. And now he's having to grow through the process of prosperity, quite frankly, which is a whole other sermon of how to use his authority and his power. His brothers have become polarized. They have been in bondage of shame and of guilt. But they will soon be released by Joseph and through his forgiveness. You see, psychologists, matter of fact, Meyer, Meyer tells us that the two most, uh, most likely scenarios why people commit suicide are this. Number one, people who just can't get forgiveness. And number two, people who never grant forgiveness. Joseph will show us in the days to come the power of forgiveness. And his brothers will be released from this shame of sin. But they will have to come to the point to where they recognize who he is. This morning, I invite you to recognize where you are. There may be something in your past that's holding you back. Holding back in your marriage. Holding back in your relationship with Christ. Holding you back from really engaging in the community of believers. Really engaging in the ministry of Christ. I want to encourage you today to release and let go. See that God is working. And that He can remove the sting of that past, whether it was something you created or something that has happened to you, but He wants to use you today. He wants you to come to Him today. Would you hear that voice? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time together this morning. Thank You for the life of Joseph, a man who chose, Father, to be faithful through adverse circumstances. And Lord, also thank You for this picture of his brothers who lived with guilt and shame because of their 
need for confession, because of their need to get real with You, God, I thank You that through the process they come to know You. And Lord, I thank You through the process we also can come to know You in a real and personal and significant and powerful way. God, I thank You for the things that You send in our life to grow us. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize them as such. Lord, we would release the bondage of our lives and embrace the grace that has been given. We ask all these things in Your name. Amen.